Hello everybody and welcome back to our study in the Minor Prophets. I'm Abraham Lee, your BSF teaching leader for the San Francisco region. And today we're looking into the second part of the book of Jeremiah. The longest prophetic writing in the Old Testament from the prophets. So we're looking today at Lesson 16, the second part of our study in Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is a long book again, but it gives us deeper clarity into the history and social turmoil in Judah as it falls to God's judgment under the Babylonians. And also gives us unparalleled insight into God's heart over the grief of his people. Remember that Jeremiah's lamenting and grieving really does echo the grief God bears for his decadent and wayward people who continually time and again rebels against his plans for them. So this week's study in Jeremiah makes me think of those, I don't know about you, I've watched a lot of movies when I was a younger person. Those teeny bopper movies from the 80s I grew up with where the parents leave their home to their young teenage son or daughter who innocently promises them that they will be good stewards of the house while they're gone, that they can be trusted when everybody knows that they cannot. (laughs) And so as soon as the parents are out of the house, the teenager is on the phone calling up all his or her buddies about planning a party that will wow the popular kids, the jocks and the cool girls. So they so much want to impress everybody and move up the social ladder. It doesn't bother them too much to waver on their promises to their parents. They invite all their friends and uh, their friends bring other friends, not such respectable friends, irresponsible friends. And then those people bring others who use drugs and bring kegs of beer. So that before they know it, the house is full of people they don't even know. And they are doing things that they can't stop. And soon they realize that in order to keep up good appearances to of looking cool and uh, in control, they have to give in to some of the bad ideas and the temptations of doping and drinking and gossiping with disgust about all the kinds of innocent people that look they look down on so that over the course of the evening these stories uh, they don't end well <laughs> so what happens usually is there's a fire or something that burns the house down and the parents arrive to find their home smoldering in ashes as their teenager is huddled in a blanket by the fire truck that's what I was thinking when I was reading Jeremiah. Uh, it reminded me of utter breakdown, uh, trust misplaced, and uh, people who didn't know how to be responsible with a great promise and covenant gifted to them by God. So Israel and Judah was out of control. They had completely defiled the temple. They continuously defiled the land with detestable idol practices. There was corruption, scandal, sins against humanity, up and down the social stratum. The entire nation was affected. The spiritual leaders failed to teach and guide in worship and proper praise, and the kings continued to run after the worldliness of the cultures and people around them. God had said to them through Moses in Exodus 19, 3-6, that the Lord called Moses from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings to bring you to myself. And now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. 
So like those young people who get so caught up in popularity and following the detrimental practices of their peers, they really didn't realize what really important promises and gifts that they were given until they lost it all. And I reflect on this as I was thinking about the main truth for this lesson. The damage of persistent sin is inescapable. But God promises restoration and mediates the way through a new messianic covenant. It is a covenant relationship by the kingship and the priestly role undertaken by one person who is the perfect atonement and the perfect deliverer and shepherd of our souls. So that as Jeremiah 33, 14 to 18 had said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah shall be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Um, I hope you see there that it doesn't say um, many generations to sit on the throne of David. This is a single man. In verse 18 continues, And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man, again, a singular man, in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. Then God says, says in the subsequent verses, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured. So I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. So here, when you read this uh, in Jeremiah 33, I hope you won't lose sight of this profound statement that God is making here uh, when he's now bringing in this idea of the laws of nature and of nature's God. That as long as day and night are rules of cosmic order, so also will he promise, keep his promise, to set up in place a son, and this is a son with a capital S, who will reign on his throne, as well as Levitical priests, his ministers, to minister before him. That is his church. And furthermore, he says the offspring of David, his servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to him will multiply to such a great number as won't be countable like the stars or the sands. And this, of course, is being fulfilled in the body of Christ, his church. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 3-6, You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human hearts. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So our doctrine for this week is God's covenant. To understand what covenant is and how 
important that is to God's plan for his people. The attribute of God that we look at is he's a preserver. And the big idea that we think on is in this study is that God's restoration of sin's damage can only be achieved by him alone. The subject sentence is that Jeremiah announced Israel's future restoration while enduring Babylon's destructive onslaught. Very tough time, as we have read uh, even last week. And the aim is to cause the audience to learn that God can make new what sin has broken. Uh, There's two divisions from the smaller part of our reading for this week. First part is Jeremiah promised Israel and Judah's future restoration and a new covenant. That's chapters 30 to 31. And then Jeremiah experienced Jerusalem's fall to Babylon while anticipating great future restoration. That's Jeremiah 32 to 33. And the principles for us to kind of linger and think about is that God can renew and restore what sin has destroyed. He's for us. As we had uh, heard last week from uh, the reading in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, where he says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And he gives us those hopes and the future first. And then he says, you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And will you bring you back from captivity? So yeah, God can renew and restore what sin has broken. So some application questions, some actionables are, how has God restored and repaired sin's damage in your life? And how, what, what great rejoicing do you have as an experience of God's restorative power? And the second application question is, in what way is God calling you to trust Him as you navigate a discouraging and difficult situation right now? Yeah, how, how is God working through you to restore and to strengthen you in times of upheaval, distress, uh, emotional Uh, chaos? How is he calling you to give you a hope and a future? Second principle is that God extends hope that transcends the desperate circumstances that we experience so far high and above beyond what we can hope or imagine for ourselves. So the third application here is what promise of God about the future gives you hope for today? What is that promise? Can you reflect on it and think about it and appreciate it? in the midst of uh, kind of your myopic, narrow vision of your circumstances today to enlarge the perspective on your life as God is painting it, as God is telling you about it. How can you enlarge your thinking to see a greater mission and purpose that he has uniquely for you in the time and circumstances that you're living in today? Now, as I go through some of these questions here, uh, I, I wanted to point out just a few as reminders of what God is telling us about himself and ourselves in a world that we're living in that's quite similar to what the Jews are experiencing back then. So in question three, we looked at what specific sins against God by the people of Judah did Jeremiah expose in the following passages. And a lot of these passages are looking at areas where um, they're either entirely in denial about what sins they're committing or they're supremely obstinate in their desire to self-gratify themselves in the ways of the world. So the first verse in Jeremiah chapter 2, it says, How can you say, I am not defiled? I have not run after the bales. See how you have behaved 
in the valleys. Consider how what you have done. You are swift she-camel running here and there, a wild donkey accustomed to the, the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving, in her heat. Who can restrain her? So this is language that's, that's quite sexual in nature, this, this kind of animalistic impulse just kind of being uh, the controlling factor for all things that they do. There's no constraint. There's no control. Do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry. But you say, it's no use. I love foreign gods. I must go after them. It's Israel defilement is depicted like an animal in sexual heat. Their enjoyment of idolatry is unfettered, kind of this lust that they run to consummate. And their love for the foreign gods is just so far overtaken, All is the root for all their desires. They are unwilling to let these things go. And then there are other verses, Jeremiah 5, where it talks about the prophets are wind, but the word is not in them. There's a lot of prophets now speaking what the people want to hear. The priests rule by their own authority and not under kind of this uh, fear of the Lord and their duty and responsibility to uh, speak the words of truth from God. Uh, this authority given to them is being abused. The land is full of adulterers, it says. Um, full of promiscuity and uh, running after all kinds of other gods to the point even the temple um, God says he finds wickedness there both prophet and priest are godless even in my temple I find their wickedness Jeremiah 23 verse 10 and then in Jeremiah 5 and 7 wicked men lie in wait to ensnare and trap catch men their houses are full of deceit they have become rich and powerful and have grown fat and sleek by their evil de deeds which have no limit they do not plead the case of the fatherless to win it they do not defend the rights of the poor so there is all this energy and uh, scheming and strategizing to trap each other and that's the way in which people make money and get ahead it's by seeing to the ruin of other people to step over and above them uh, Jeremiah 7 uh, is an appeal to go back to the essence of what God is teaching, first in the love of God, but then also to love one another. It says, you do not, if you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, it says, following other gods damages us. It damages our, our thoughts, our imaginations. And you know, the imagination is the root of our hopes. Now, people don't realize how important, how the things and the objects that we develop an affection for starts to work away at our imaginations and the way in which we envision ourselves, envision the world that we want to live in and envision the future. And in this process, Jeremiah 7 says, you know, you, they do these things stealing and murdering and committing adultery and murder, burning incense to Baal and following other gods, and at the same time saying, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things without any, any fear of the Lord. And the Lord says, I have been watching, verse 11, has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. So why should God's people acknowledge and repent? from specific sins and not general sins. Well, specific sins are important because we always need to be better at describing and confessing the things that we have done wrong. If we are good at kind of generalizing, 
what we have been engaged in. We haven't done enough hard work in plowing through and unpacking and defining, clearly understanding our wrongs. And so it is always important to go deeper and to understand what it is in our specific sins that we have done and being confessional to God about them in prayer. So we also learn from this study, Jeremiah's attitude as he exposed the sins of countrymen are not just one of pointing fingers, but he is an anguish over the judgment. We see verses here in verse 4 in particular where it points out how deeply in anguish Jeremiah is. He says, oh, my anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. That's chapter 4, verse 19 to 21. Oh, the agony of my heart. My heart pounds within me. I cannot keep silent, for I have heard the sound of the trumpet. I have heard the battle cry. Disaster follows disaster. The whole land lies in ruin. And in an instant, my tents are destroyed, my shelter in a moment. How long must I see the battle standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? You know, Jeremiah's weeping and lamenting, not only because he's echoing the grieving heart of God, but there's also here, um, Jeremiah is vividly seeing before him the destruction that is about to take place. And through this, he's hoping as a fellow countryman to bring people to repentance, to listen to his words. He says in chapter 8, since my people are crushed, I am crushed. I mourn and horror grips me. I mean, he's really experiencing the pain uh, vicariously on behalf of his people. But then eventually he also uh, becomes the object of pain or inflicted with pain. Is there no balm in Gilead? A famous line. The balm in Gilead. Gilead is a region known for um, aromatic plants. And a balm is uh, often made from here famously and was traded down all the way to Egypt. We hear about the balm that was collected by the Ishmaelites when they were trading with Egypt and they found Joseph uh, on the way and rescued him from his brothers. But then we also hear about the balm that was part of the gifts that uh, Jacob has his brothers take down to the Pharaoh. Uh, The balm of Gilead was apparently quite famous. So there's this balm, a healing ointment, a healing medicinal kind of uh, relief. Is there a balm? Is there no physician? And of course, these words are pointing to and prefiguring the great physician, our Lord. And, and question five is very important when it asks, what truths about God, his heart, and his ways do you learn from this passage? Well, here... Uh, God is forming and shaping clay into a vessel for his use. And he uses the analogy of a potter and the potter in which he is forming and shaping uh, the clay. If it becomes marred in the process, he starts from the scratch and shapes it as seemed best to him. God says, like clay in the hand of a potter, Israel is, is in his hands. Even after God has said he will uproot, tear down, and destroy, the nation takes if the nation takes heed of God's warning and repents of its evil, God says he will relent and not inflict disaster as he had planned. And so th- there's a combination here that even as God makes these indictments as judgments against, against the sin in the land, conversely, if the nation is also repentant, it will also be brought back to built up to be planted. Uh, but if it continues to do evil in his sight, he will reconsider the good he has intended for it. The message here is that God will relent and God will reconsider his goodwill on an evil nation and, and his uh and his judgment on a good nation. Uh, He will relent. He is not rigid in extending his mercy on those he wills. 
because he has said he is a gracious God, full of compassion and mercy, and he backs that up. He backs that up with what he is going to do. Now by Jeremiah 30 and through 33, which we read and studied this week, there's the beginnings of the great promise. They're sprinkled throughout the, uh, the book of Jeremiah, but here it's, it's quite um, noticeable. Uh, first, there's the uh, tie-in of the Messiah into the message of hope, the Messiah who will be the king and the priest. It says in verse 8 of chapter 30, In that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will break the yoke off their necks and will tear off their bonds. No longer will foreigners enslave them. Instead, they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, who I will raise up for them. They will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. Then maidens will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn the morning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance, and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. And then he continues, I will restore and I will uh, bring out singing and thanksgiving and sounds of rejoicing. I will add to their numbers and they will not decrease. So the people of the land live together, all farmers and, and with their flocks. I will refresh the weary and satisfy the faint. So why would these promises encourage the people of Judah at this particular point in history and beyond? Well, the Empire of Babylon, you know, they've come and laid up siege works. And they've already conquered many of the nations around them. The empire of Babylon appears so great and their work of devastation so complete. There doesn't seem to be any hope for anything else for the Jews by this point. The end of the nation appears to be complete and final, finished. But God teaches them that they are not finished, but they will reinherit the land. I mean, if you just from all looks and appearance of the evidence around them, you see this great city that you once kind of bragged about and was a center one of the major center uh, centers of trading and commerce and just uh, affluence completely devastated and burned to the ground uh, but in the middle of this there are overtones of something much greater than just merely a hope of a return by the exiles there are signs of sorrow of rachel mourning over great distress of course uh, which we read about again uh, in jesus's uh, nativity, but also the king from a line of David who will never be replaceable. There are signs of people that God plants that will never be rooted out or displaced again on God's holy mountain. There are many messianic prophetic words here that we must take note because we it, they're sprinkled in here uh, because they're pointing to the uh, the immediate future and then the much later future to come. So there are many messianic prophet, prophetic words uh, that apply to a kingdom of people much more worthier than they could ever be. That's the key thing. These words are now pointing to a people that are made worthy by the blood of the Lamb. So after it says here that the Lord Almighty says, I'm going to break off the yoke off their necks and will tear off their bonds and they won't be slaves anymore. And instead, he says, they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. And then in verse 10, it goes on to say, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. Proclaim it in the distant coastlands. He who has scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will ransom Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord. And so, yeah, 
there are intonations of messianic promises are blended in with the promises of comfort to the exiles. It is a blessing to be restored to one's land and not have to be considered a marginal member with marginal or no rights to work or live in a kingdom that belonged to someone else in a system that has been created and established for the service of others. This is their reality to live in Babylon. The Jews, however, would return to the land of their own and remember their heritage. The game was not over. Their nation was not going to be snuffed out. They could remember their heritage, their promises, this new promise and covenant by God, and that they could rely on a king to come from among their own people through the line of David. That had been tried. That had been tried many times. We saw that throughout this last term, that there has not been that much difference in any of the hearts, whether the king was elected or brought in by succession, by election, or by competition. None of that worked. Human hearts and human minds could not deliver on a just and righteous king. It, and that led to, of course, the exile. And um, any other king to come along thereafter that was going to be human uh, would be just as fallen and would result in um, the same situation that they fell into before the exile. There would have been no difference. Something radically different had to be done. So God is pointing to a more eternal hope of authority and rulership who would break the yoke off people's chain and tear their bonds. Under him will the people no longer be slaves to foreign entities or, or enemies. Instead, they will serve the Lord their God. Uh, here it's called David, but that's a, a proxy uh, word for the king who God will raise up for them in the attitude of devotion and stewardship that David had. God declared that the time is coming. He will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. It is different from the one which humans attempted to uh, want to keep with God, where teachers undertake to teach and remind each other, you know, you got to believe this, you got to know this. It says, they will all know me from the least to the greatest because, chapter 31, verse 33, God says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And that is hearkened again um, and echoed in the New Testament, especially in Hebrews, as we saw. He says in Hebrews chapter 7 that Christ has become a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are my priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And by calling his covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete in aging will soon disappear. Hebrews 10, 15 goes to remind us that the Holy Spirit is the one that undertakes this work. He testifies about this. It says, first, he says, this is the covenant and I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my law laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. So here in these verses, in Hebrews in particular, we see the reality of this new covenantal promise of God is experienced and known through the work and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant and becomes our high priest, and the Holy Spirit testifies and makes us ministers of the new covenant of the Spirit, which gives life. And that's from 2 Corinthians 3.6. And lastly, I'll just close with this. And there's a final question above. What specific encouragement did God extend to his people through Jeremiah's purchase of a field? You remember Jeremiah bought a field from his uncle. 
And, and this is kind of um, interesting because there are times there are those actions that a prophet takes to accentuate um, symbolically the importance of something that God is trying to communicate. And God tells Jeremiah to purchase this plot of land right as uh, Jerusalem and Judah is being uh, attacked and sieged. Uh, such a real estate deal at this particular time would have no relevance at all if a nation was not in a real ongoing concern. Any contracts made in a nation which is totally destroyed and taken over by another will not have any authority or powers to enforce any of the rights and entitlements to the clauses and promises made under its uh, authority or jurisdiction. For instance, I mean, can you imagine a bankrupt company when it is uh, on the verge of being dissolved uh, have it, and will have very little rights uh, to enforce, uh, if any, being taken over by another company, and the captured entity have no legal recourse at all, right? Because, because they're bankrupt. So if anyone purchased stocks in such a company, a doomed and failed company that is about to be dissolved, that would be a supremely foolish mood. I mean, that's throwing money away. But here... God specifically told the Israelites and the Jews that they will return to the land and it will be restored in abundance, that they will not be snuffed out. Like prophets before him who uh, often made strong prophecies, which they enacted out in public and in highly symbolic displays, such as lying down on one side for extended periods of time or shaving off one's hair and beard or eating a scroll. Can you imagine eating a scroll or marrying an adulterous woman? Here the prophet Jeremiah is told to enter into a contract to buy land from his uncle, a family plot, uh, only because God instructed him to do it. No other person would in their right mind do this uh, as Babylon is on the verge of taking over the country. Otherwise, um, this, this would be a senseless and worthless transaction um, given that Nebuchadnezzar was already bringing vast armies against Jerusalem and things looked terrible terrible for buying real estate i mean when a house when, when when there's devastation in the land and you're under attack that's not the time to be going house hunting uh, it was the 10th year it says of zedekiah king of judah which was the 18th year of nebuchadnezzar right in the middle of the babylonian siege of jerusalem the army of the king of babylon was then besieging jerusalem and jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard he was he was simply, he was in confinement. He was imprisoned in the royal palace of Judah. The assault and siege works were built around Jerusalem in Zedekiah's ninth year. And this is, this is about the time when uh, Zedekiah is about 30 years old. Uh, it was about this time this offer was made, a blind purchase purely on the basis of obedience to God's instruction as a testimony to God's word to the people of hope that they will return to the land because the land has so much more to now tell us in the testimony of the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem. This land is not over in telling us more and more of God's amazing stories and plan for us to bear witness to. God preserves the messianic line of David in Jehoiachin, who is the last surviving member of the line of David and one who is mentioned in the lineage of Jesus, as I had mentioned last week, through Joseph found in Matthew. It is not the end, as people might believe, but the start of something else, more eternal and fulfilling. All of God's promises that he had told Adam about from the very beginning, God will fulfill his promises. Let's think about, in closing, that third application. 
given all that he has done and all he has said, now bringing it home to you where you are now, what promise of God about the future gives you hope for today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that your promises and your covenant to us in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, Yeshua Messiah, does not rely with us. We trust entirely on you, Lord, for you are the powerful one, Lord, who makes a way where we don't see a way. And we are so thankful that it is not up to us to merit your righteousness. Our righteousness in, is in you, and we proclaim that the Lord is our righteousness. And we look to our shepherd, we look to our shepherd to fulfill all that your covenant promises for us in the time to come, for all eternity. We give you praise and worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.